This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Sherry Turkle, who is the Abby Rockefeller Mose Professor of, the Social, of Social Studies of Science and Technology in the Program in Science, Technology, and Society at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's a prolific writer and has published many books, including Life on the Screen, Identity in the Age of the Internet, Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other, and most recently, Reclaiming Conversation, the power of talk in a digital age. Sherry, welcome to Berkeley. My pleasure. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, that's where I was raised. And looking back, how do you think your parents shape your thinking about the world? Um, I think they had a pretty insular view uh, of the world. I think that they didn't... uh, really live uh, much past uh, Brooklyn. And I think that they shaped my view of the world because I so desperately wanted to get out. Um, So I think that they uh, shaped me by encouraging me to uh, follow that dream. And and your interest in psychology and identity, did that come as an undergraduate later? uh, Or was it something that developed when you were still at home? I think that's so interesting. I think I was always very introspective, trying to understand my family culture. I'm writing a memoir now uh, about uh, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, about my family. Uh, So I think I was very interested in my family culture and the people around me. Um, So probably I've always been very introspective and uh, I, I, but I think certainly as an undergraduate, I studied with Eric Erickson, who, who was about um, identity. Uh, it was. I remember Eric Erickson. Remember thinking he looked like God. He had this sort <laughs> of white hair. <laughs> and he was very influential in that time because very you're you're at Harvard in the sixties or yes. Radcliffe, and then yes. Harvard in the sixties. Yes, and he he used to walk the campus with his wife, and I, I mean, people used to say, "Look, Mister and Mrs. God." I mean, he he really had that aura. And uh, he taught a course on identity in the life cycle. And uh, I I sat in on that course for three years just listening to him talk about identity in the life cycle. And and we'll talk about some of your books in in a minute, but uh, they're written with uh, great clarity and writing skill. Uh, When did this... Uh, concern, focus, and craft writing come to you over time? Did you develop that in in high school and in college? Or I was the editor of my, but probably I should have answered your question about identity about by talking about being editor of my high school newspaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- I think I saw myself as a writer in high school before I saw myself as an academic or knew anything about being an academic. I think that I was confirmed an idea that I would be a writer when I in high school. 
because I just, it was the thing I loved. I mean, I, I, I just, uh, I didn't know that women could be academics. Even in college, there were really no tenured professors at Harvard. I went to Radcliffe, uh, which you, you studied with the Harvard faculty. There were no tenured women on the Harvard faculty. I never had a woman as a professor the whole time mm. I was there. Yeah. I'm not sure I knew that that was a day job for girls. Um, uh, but I knew that there were women writers, and I think I saw myself as a writer before I thought of myself as an academic. So the idea that I would uh, work on my writing and craft my writing and rewrite and rewrite is certainly something that I, uh, from the very beginning, was of interest to me. And I write, I really do, um, when people say, when my students uh, say to me, well, oh, you're such a good writer, I, I always say to them, well, you're reading the 30th draft. So writing is editing, and I try to teach that to my students, that uh, that's the trick. So was it, was it an easy journey from uh, Brooklyn to Radcliffe? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I went to a high school where, I, where my guide, you know, it was no one from my high school went to uh, Ivy League schools. It was very unusual. Mm. Uh, I was told that to do that, you had to be the valedictorian, and so that was very hard to be the valedictorian. I think there were 1,500 people in the graduating class, so it was a job. And um, I was valedictorian, and I was very fortunate, and I— In high school. In yeah. high school, yeah. I got to go. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was actually quite—it uh, was really a job to be, um, to get that accomplished. But I was— you know, if I hadn't, I'm sure I would have gotten to a good school if I'd been number two or three or four or five. But it was, it was actually, um, it was actually a, a task. But besides Erickson, who were your mentors or your great influencers in your undergraduate education? Um, Barrington Moore, who was a great Marxist. Uh, Stanley Hoffman, who. Uh, ignited my study of France and French intellectual life, which was, I wrote my first book on France, and that was very influenced by uh, uh, studying with Stanley Hoffman, Lawrence Wiley, another scholar of French life, uh, George Homans, uh, a sociologist uh, at Harvard who was very important to me, Marty Peretz, who uh, was the chairman of the social studies department, which was my undergraduate major. I had many mentors. I was very fortunate. I really had many. Um, uh, Dan David Reisman, uh, a student of American uh, culture. Uh, there was a lot of, I was very fortunate in that um, I was at Harvard at a time uh, when uh, there was a uh, there was a lot of um, political ferment, but also a lot of uh, attention paid to undergraduate teaching and to undergraduate majors. And um, I, I had a great undergraduate experience. I, re I really did. Uh, I, I was very, very fortunate. Was it the times that, that uh, uh, made you so voracious a student, or was this something that came from your background? Well, you know, I I went there uh, ready to, I mean, I went there 
ready to learn. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm here, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't, I want to give myself full credit that I kind of got there ready to go. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it was also the times. I mean, I think that uh, it was very political times, so I wanted to, you know, Marx, Weber, Durkheim, Freud, I mean, everything was relevant to thinking about politics, to thinking about, uh, you know, why, how did people absorb ideas, what ideas were important, what ideas could help you think through American culture. Uh, uh, you know, every, every, you know, I, the world, I was lit to understand um, wh what, what was happening. I, I didn't understand anything. And, 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 I was, and, and, and people felt that great ideas, um, I think this is perhaps the difference from now, is that people, people around me felt that history would help me understand what was happening. And uh, that ideas mattered. And that know. ideas mattered. And I'm, I'm not sure that now, when people try to understand our current dilemma, people want to go to Marx, Weber, Durkheim, Freud. I mean, I, I think that there's a, I was in a group of people where that was the first thing that occurred to us was to try to understand our dilemma by going to history, by going to sociology, to great ideas. You then went to France. Now, was this before yes. you graduated? Yes. It was an interesting convergence of things. I had a, a personal difficulty. My mom died in co when I was in college. My mother died, and I was in no state uh, idea. I, I couldn't study. I couldn't work. Um, I needed to take a break. And um, I had been studying French politics and society. And I, I went to France. I dropped out of school. I worked as a cleaning lady in, in France. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I went to Sciences Po. Uh, so I was a kind of cleaning lady student. Um, and uh, I, while there, uh, I was there just after the May Days, and I observed something that would turn out to be quite fateful for my later work. I observed that people who had been active in the May Days were starting to kind of converge towards uh, getting interested in psychoanalysis, but not any psychoanalysis, uh, the psychoanalysis of Jacques Lacan which was kind of unusual because in America, the people who were interested in politics did not kind of trend towards the psychoanalysis. Uh, on the contrary, people who were interested in politics thought that psychoanalytic things was kind of moving away from politics towards an interest in the self. Those two trends were very different uh, because I was interested in, in Freud and that was a very different track than being interested in politics. And what, what was different about it? Well, that was the question for me. Mm -hmm. What was there about Jacques Lacan, his brand of psychoanalysis, that people felt that moving from politics to psychoanalysis was kind of doing the same thing? And that question of what was this politically acceptable psychoanalysis um, became the theme of my first book, because then I, when I came back to... Uh, Harvard to do a PhD in uh, sociology and psychology, the subject of my dissertation was psychoanalytic politics, became my first book, um, which was really what was the mystery, this intellectual history mystery of what was there about the Lacanian movement that had made this slippage 
from politics to psychoanalysis possible? What was this infatuation with Freud that had that had made this a kind of political psychoanalysis? And, and did that make that slippage make politics interesting? And did it offer explanatory power for these mass movements? Well, it wasn't. It it was. It was. It offered a political language for psychoanalysis. The Communist Party became interested in Lacan. It 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 offered a it offered a political language to psychoanalysis, and it offered a uh, a way to make um, to think about politics in a psychological way. Um, and you know, I think it um, it. Uh, I think people sensed that it wasn't the moment for a political revolution in France, and they wanted to continue to think about, they wanted a way to think about their, the self in a way that was politicized. And L the Lacanian movement provided that. Uh, and it was it was a very interesting uh, it was a very interesting time and in, and I interviewed psychoanalysts I interviewed political people but I was what really was very fascinating for me and that then provided a transition to my later work is I became interested in the idea of of not the psychoanalytic movement but the psychoanalytic culture that is to say what happens to psychoanalytic ideas when they sort of hit the street. And they're no longer the ideas of the intelligentsia, but they're the ideas that people use really in everyday life. Um, you know, what happens to ideas not as they're elaborated by intellectuals, but as they're brought into people's sort of everyday lives. And that became important to me because when I began to study artificial intelligence, um, I wasn't interested in these ideas as they were developed in seminar rooms, but as they came down and hit the street, when people began to use ideas from computers to talk about their own minds and their children's minds, you know, kind of as, the, as ideas from computation became embedded in everyday life, when people had personal computers. And so that notion of a sociology of sciences of mind as we pick it up in everyday life um, really became my academic kind of my academic um, identity, mm -hmm. and so there was a kind of uh, even though the topics changed from psychoanalysis to computer culture, that sort of became my thing. Uh, you are a sociologist, yes. a psychologist yes. that winds up. So focusing on the cyber world yes. and, and what it's doing to us. Uh, I like to ask my guests about the, the skill sets mm -hmm. and the temperament that uh, is at the heart of their work uh, with the possibility of, you know, uh, advising students about how they prepare f for their own future. Well, what I would say is that when I started out, uh, I looked like I was very confused because I needed to learn how to be a sociologist because I needed to learn about Durkheim and Weber and Marx and how to think about large social movements. But I needed really, I felt, to learn 
how to be a clinician, how to learn how to do clinical interviews. I'm trained as a psychoanalyst as well. I needed, I, I felt I needed a clinical degree. So I looked like somebody who was a little bit all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I felt very uh, conflicted about that because, you know, other people were either going to law school or they were going to, to getting a degree in political science or I was jealous of them because they looked so, they looked so, I don't know, so organized. And I went to Chicago to the Committee on Social Thought, and then I went to Harvard and got a sociology degree, and then I said, no, I also need a clinical degree. I mean, I just, I got a mm. joint degree in personality psychology and sociology, and then I got clinical accreditation, and I mean, I did a lot of degree. <laughs> I mm. did a lot of, I did yeah. a lot of things. So I think that my advice would be I needed, I just needed these different skill sets, and I just got these different skill sets. And I, and I just did to get them one after another. And I just would say to students who feel that they need a couple of skill sets, relax. You know, you're going to feel a little disorganized. You know, you may feel a little greedy or a little disorganized. And you'll be jealous of people who seem more organized. But if you feel that your intellectual identity depends on getting these different skill sets. If you can afford it, you know, I had to work jobs and I had to, took me a little longer and, but, you know, just put one foot in front of the other. And so I, I, I sort of am glad you asked me this question because I think that actually I did feel, I don't want to say I felt guilty, but I felt bad about myself, you know, mm -hmm. because other, I felt envious of other people who seem more you know, organized. And, and I want to just ask you, did you know where you were going with all of this? Or was it just that you were excited about what you could learn? I had, I, I knew that I needed, I, I had this idea of this intimate ethnography. That's how I thought about it that I wanted to do, it seemed to me that I wanted to do a kind of ethnographic work where you interviewed people and you were on the ground in a kind of ethnographic setting. But it seemed to me that the kind of interviewing I wanted to do to ask somebody, for example, about why they were in psychoanalysis when they had just been in political action, that the kind of an interview that required was actually quite intimate. Mm. It was, I mean, it was, the questions were not like, you know, with your microphones or, you know, it was a very intimate interview because it, it, it was, you know, asking why they were in psychoanalysis, was, that, mm. you know, it took a long time. You couldn't ask it directly. You had to befriend them. You had, they had to trust you. You know, they were maybe going to tell you very intimate things and, they were going to be talking about the failure of this political movement and how they felt about that, but now they were in psychoanalysis, and they weren't going to say they were in psychoanalysis because the political movement failed. I mean, that, I mean, it was going to be a very, you needed skills. And um, I saw that I didn't have those skills. So to get better at that kind of thing, I needed to really develop skills. Um, and the more clinical skills I had, 
the better I got at it. Um, so I felt that I needed to really work on clinical skills. And I developed this notion in my mind of intimate ethnography with clinical skills. And so that, I would say, that was my guiding idea. And once I had that guiding idea, well, things fell into place. When you look at your works, there, 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 uh, two things stand out for me. Not, not the only two things, but way to approach your work. And one is what you chose to study. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the other is your philosophical perspective, and and that seems to be focused on what makes us human, our humanness. Talk a little about that. Does that emerge out of this extraordinary education? Uh, uh, d- does it inform our understanding of what it is you're doing? Um, well, uh, I think that my concern about the human really has come out of my study of computer culture, uh, working with people who are, tra- are, are, are so often saying that we don't need to be human. I mean, I remember, mm. <laughs> I'm just writing, I'm just writing a, uh, a, a memoir now, and, and in my work I have already c- cited the story of, of, of Marvin Minsky um, and going with Marvin Minsky to a showing of the movie Tron. Marvin Minsky is a great AI, artificial intelligence is hero. Is this the same Minsky who was an economist? No, he's, no. A, um, he's an artificial intelligence okay, okay. guru. Okay. He's one of the founders of artificial intelligence. Okay. And we see together, we see the movie Tron, mm-hmm. which is a movie about the, 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 the brain and how the brain is made up of a, of a society of programs. and It's a very AI movie. And we come out of the movie, and, and of course, Minsky's very excited, and we're there with all of his students, and they're all, we're all talking about his movie as kind of an embodiment of his idea. His idea is called The Society of Mind, and the mind is made up of embodied programs. And Marvin and I get into a conversation, and he says, um, you know, uh, no children should see, the, they should all, all children should see this movie because it teaches how the mind is made up of programs. No children, it's, it, children should see this movie and they shouldn't see the movie Bambi. <laughs> and um, and I, I, I say, well, you know, I love, them. I, love, I love Bambi. Why shouldn't they see Bambi? Because Bambi teaches that you attach to a mother and in the future we're all going to be embodied mm. in computers and there should be no attachment. We're never going to die because we're going to embody ourselves in computers. It's the wrong message because we shouldn't be teaching about death. And that we're not going to die. We're just going to become computers. There should be no attachment to mothers. And he's, he's off on this. We're not going to be human. We're going to be embodied in computers. This is my, this is MIT. This is my mm. lot. So I think that I became like very... Mm. Are you kidding me? No mothers. We're going to go into computer. You know, it's like <laughs> I became like very team human. You know, kind of 
surrounded by people who either we were going to graduate and become computers, we're going to become embodied in computers, we're going to become linked to computers. So I think that I became, uh, I remember one of his students told me that he wants to, Minsky wanted to, I was interviewing the student and the student said, well, Minsky wants to create a, a computer that a soul would want to live in. I mean, the, I, was in, I was surrounded by a culture where we were either going to marry computers or graduate and evolve into computers. So I think that I, I very early in my time at MIT started to think about, well, what was essential about being human? Um, and I think that that became, as I began to study uh, children in computers, smart machines, children responding to smart machines, the question of what was essential about being human became something that was just like in my face to start thinking about. So it, it, it wasn't like I went into it with this as my, I wasn't particularly trained as a philosopher or I mean I'm totally out of my depth actually. Um, there wasn't like my philosophical, it wasn't where I came from philosophically, but I very early on in my, um, and literally on the ground when I was studying these children talking about what it was special about being human, it's what I started to think about, surrounded by these people who couldn't tolerate the movie Bambi because it was too sentimental about <laughs> humanity. How did you wind up at MIT? Was that a choice about studying no. this cyber no, world? No, 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 no. I, I was in Cambridge, and um, I was writing. No, this was totally an accident. I was in Cambridge, and I wanted to turn my dissertation. And I had written my French Freud dissertation, and it was the dissertation was done, but I wanted to turn it into a book. And so I really wasn't ready to take an, uh, an assistant professorship job. And MIT offered me a um, a um, a kind of year, um, what was it, like a research fellowship, and they said we have this research fellowship in this new program called Science, Technology, and Society. And at the end of the year, if you want to be an assistant professor, there's a job for you in this new program. But for the year, you don't. There's no teaching. You just have to do your turn your dissertation into a book. And I thought, well, that's a great, you know, that's a great deal because I just, so I just, by accident, uh, but I, I hadn't, uh, computers were 100% not on my mind. I just wanted to turn my dissertation on Jacques Lacan into a book. But when I was there, I discovered the world of computer. I mean, I just, like, it was all around me. And I saw the, I don't want to say the similarities, because that's not strong enough, the analogy between artificial intelligence, psychoanalysis, the science of mind that was now coming into the popular culture, carried by an object. The difference between psychoanalysis and, and artificial intelligence was very dramatic because Psychoanalysis is carried into the popular culture by writings or dreams. I mean, there are, I, I argued mm. that there are objects that carry psychoanalysis into popular culture. 
the fact that we talk about our dreams using a psychoanalytic language is a way that it's carried into popular culture. But the computer stuff was being carried into popular culture by these, this new object, the computer language being carried into popular culture by this new object. And I came to MIT just at the moment when personal computers were starting to be in popular culture. Literally, 1976 was the year of the first personal computers. Um, and and I, I just lucked out that, I mean, I, I shouldn't say lucked out because, I mean, I had to see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had to, you know, I, I saw it. I saw it. And uh, I, I just saw it. Explain this a little more about the, in other words, computers were an object to study. Yes, I call it an evocative object. Okay. And 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 why are they important? Because they They are carried these new ideas. In other words, in at MIT at the time, mm-hmm. there was artificial intelligence, this new science of thinking about the mind as a machine. Mm-hmm. There was this new kind of thinking called cognitive science, which was again thinking about the mind as a machine, that, that, that the human memory could be analogized to the memory in a computer. Um, so the birth of cognitive science, the birth of artificial intelligence, these new sciences of mind that were thinking about the mind in machine terms, and these new ways of thinking about the mind, which now we think of as so natural, we think of the mind as a machine, were being were now going to be coming into the culture, I thought, because at the same time as they were being discussed in seminar rooms and laboratories, um, Texas Instruments or Radio Shack or Apple, you know, not yet Apple, but, you know, the people in garages that I was learning about were building personal computers that were going to be starting to come into the culture as objects. And in 1976, I could start to see that. You could start to see that all of this was starting. 76, 77, 78, all of that was starting to happen. And in the beginning and in, in your first book on this, yes. you were more positive yes. about the impact Very. of these objects yes. coming into the culture. Very. Talk- Talk, talk a little about that. I mean, what was what was great about it then? Well, because um, you had a new science of mind, a new way of reflecting on the self that was, I called the children who were meeting computer toys for the first time, met them and began talking like I called them child philosophers. They started talking. These new objects provoked thinking about the self. You know, children would meet these new objects and they would start to talk about, uh, well, these objects are programmed. I wonder if I'm programmed. And they would start to reflect on, well, this is a programmed thing. I wonder if I'm programmed. And they would start to talk about the nature of being programmed. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, they're just, they're just like anybody would if they said, well, this thing is programmed. I wonder if I'm programmed. Or they would start to really talk, talk about, uh, and also you have to remember that in the early days, children programmed computers. You couldn't work these computers unless you programmed them. 
So all children were programmers. So my first book on these objects, there are chapters and chapters on child programmers. Because when children met these computers, the only you couldn't work with the computers unless you programmed the computers. So there were, no computers came with stuff to do with them unless you programmed them. So everybody who had a computer programmed a computer. So the, the things you did with computers involved your learning to think like a computer and you're getting involved in computational thinking. And so it was like watching people learn um, a new way of thinking about, well, maybe the mind works like that. I wonder what it is to think like a computer. I wonder if I think like a computer. I wonder if people have always thought like computers or what is it to think like a computer. So I was very positive about the kinds of conversations about mind that were happening in the culture, just as I had been very excited about I wasn't particularly for or against them. It wasn't that's not my place. But just as I'd been very excited about the kinds of conversations about mind that were happening in France, mm-hmm. when people were dialoguing about psychoanalysis, that's so, an exciting thing to watch. So, so at, at this stage, computers were a tool that, in service of the human mind in the yes. in the human it provoked meeting. thinking yeah and then what happened was they became black boxed and they became not they became like games i mean they just they became closed down and they became something that you sort of no longer were open for that kind of thinking they became just sort of shut down and not transparent anymore, but opaque, and no longer were all kind of available to most people for that kind of reflection. So um, the nature of what computer culture meant changed. And so you fortunately wound up in a place mm-hmm. where what you were surrounded by and what you came to study was changing over time. Yes. And I, what I did was I, I, I studied that shift. I studied that shift from transparency to opacity in the nature of these objects. And actually, that was the topic of, of kind of my next books were, were really marking that shift from transparency to opacity in the nature of the computer culture. And that was, I think, my contribution has been to... Uh, to talk about that shift and really to document the inner life of you know how the how the computer culture has has changed our inner life because now when you know we, we're deeply enmeshed in a computer culture that no longer is that kind of evocative object for those sorts of issues now we use the computer for very different things and the issues that it brings up are very different for us. Now I'm on to a whole different set of issues when I talk about the computer and, culture. And so the next, the next stage is really confronting uh, the, uh, what, what shall we call it, the, the Bambi moment, essentially, <laughs> which, which is right. to say, why not Bambi? So what's, intri- right. what's intriguing about what you're saying right. is it, it wasn't the extraordinary education so much as the reality that you were 
confronting right. that that made you more and more sensitive to our loss of humanity. Well, or I the mean, diminishing. I, yeah. The, well, I mean, I think I think that you know, and uh, that studying the, the computer culture at MIT. I mean, I studied the changes in what uh, computers have computers have confronted us with with changing opportunities and changing challenges. So um, right now, uh, the challenge—I mean, the, the challenges that they confront us with—are are considerable. Right now, the challenges are to our privacy, to our democracy, to our sense of self. Uh, are we happy with the notion of evolving uh, with computers to a different place? People talk about kind of coevolution with computers. Is that something we're? Comfortable with the challenges to democracy, I mean, the challenges face poses to democracy and privacy. That's a different kind of challenge. I mean, there there are so many things that we're confronted with now. Um, but there's also the uh, I'm you know given my background, I'm particularly interested in uh, what I call artificial intimacy. I mean, uh, you know we. We have uh, computers that can pretend to be psychotherapists that can have a conversation with you about, uh, uh, you know, your love life, your uh, your feelings, your spouse, your children. I mean, the fact that it can pretend that the fact that a computer can pretend or be good enough to to fake uh, intimacy doesn't mean that it's capable of intimacy or empathy, and. Um, I think that's a, you know, this as if intimacy and empathy, people need to sort out uh, whether that's good enough to be the real thing. So I, I'm trying to spark a conversation about that. One of the two of the core ideas that you latch on to develop, one is solitude. Yes. The, talk a little about that because. You see solitude as key to the uh, development and maturation of the individuals so that they can go out and confront the world. Yes. So in my in, um, in Reclaiming Conversation, I talk about two things. I try to organize my ideas, uh, saying, you know, that there, there are two things that are lost in our recent fascination with our, our phones, you know, yeah. our heads and our phones. And one is, is that people are becoming um, less capable of being bored. We're losing the uh, capacity for boredom, and bo- the capacity to be bored is an incredibly important developmental um, moment. And in, in it's, it's so important because boredom, when you're feeling bored, your brain is not bored at all. Your brain is laying down uh, uh, what's called the default mode network, which is the, um, is, the, is the pathways for the development of a stable sense of an autobiographical self. So you need those moments when you feel bored for your brain really to develop your stable sense of self. And uh, you, right now, when people feel bored, they have like no tolerance and they go immediately to their phones. So the first thing is I, I try to argue, you know, remind people of the importance of those moments of boredom and say, you know, walk towards boredom. Make sure your child doesn't have a phone in front of them 
because there are there are potty trainers with slots for an iPhone and slots for an iPad. No, 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 baby bouncers where you can put an iPad and iPhone. No, no, you know, mm-hmm. let your child be bored. Um, let them develop that capacity. So boredom is very important, and with boredom comes the capacity for solitude. Now, why is solitude? These go together very often, because very often in solitude we need to have that moment of boredom. Now, why solitude is so important? Because the capacity for solitude means you're, you're alone with yourself, you can tolerate your own company, you know your own company, which means that when you go to somebody else, because you're okay with yourself, you can then recognize them for who they are. You're not trying to use who they are to buttress your fragile sense of yourself. You're, you're okay with yourself so you can recognize another person. So it's, a, it's actually very important to know who you are and be okay with who you are in order to recognize someone else for who they are. The two really go together. And uh, we forget that. We forget the importance of solitude for relational purposes. And we have to remember the importance of solitude for relational purposes. So... So the, psychoanaly- the psychoanalytic tradition is so important here because the, the great psychoanalyst David Winnicott, and here I p- paraphrase, said, you know, if you don't teach your children to be lonely, they'll, uh, to, if you don't teach your children to be alone, they'll only know how to be lonely, which is, I think, one of the great insights from the psychoanalytic tradition, which people throw out much too quickly now. You need to know how to be alone in order to be not lonely. Because if you know how to be alone, you'll be able to really connect with other people. And now that we have our phones, people do not know how to be lonely. They go immediately to their phone. And the minute they start to be lonely, they, no, I don't want to do this, they go to their phone instead. So they're not really learning about themselves the way they need to learn about themselves. And then the, the, the solitude makes possible the capacity to do conversation, yes, which is then very important to the further maturation Absolutely. of the self. Right. So I'm trying to argue now, I mean, the challenges we face now are challenges to privacy, are challenges to intimacy, are challenges to democracy, are challenges to identity, but are deeply challenges to can you put away your phone long enough to know solitude so then you can have relationships so it's not just—it's not just that we face, you know, are we going to be human and not fall in love with artificial intelligences? Are we going to be just able to be by ourselves so that we can be with other people? So right now, it's not that I don't like technology; it's that I'm really worried. It's not like an anti-technology position. I'm worried about people. I'm not against. I'm not. I'm pro-human. I'm not against technology. I'm just very much pro-human. It does, it's not, I don't begin with an animosity towards technology. I'm just, I'm just very concerned about human beings and their development and being able to maintain relationships with other human beings. I don't begin with like, oh, I'm against technology. I don't, I, technology is not kind of what's on my, it's not, I don't begin with that. So, so what over time, as you've studied this subject, your concern emerges as a result of what was a tool has turned us into a tool. 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, what, what was the tool? Now I don't know what we're using the tool for. I think right. we've lost our we've lost our way. When people have a moment of a moment of boredom and pick up their phone, it's no longer a tool. It's no longer a I'm using it to. It's like I'm using it to not have a moment of boredom. Well, now it's no longer a. Uh, that's not exactly a tool, exactly. That's like a, what is that? <laughs> well, it's a master. It's, it's, a, a, it's becoming. It's a, it's a, I don't know. It's, it's a tool to not have a moment of boredom. But if a moment of boredom is a good thing because it's helping you develop a self and an identity and a stable, a stable self and a set of interests and a, a capacity for empathy, then you're, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an underminer of human potential. So that's not a tool anymore. That's an underminer. So uh, that's, not a, that's not a good thing. And, and the key here is attention. That, yeah. that, that you confronting the initial anxiety of yes. boredom and being uh, lonely, you, your attention is shifted to another place. Yes. And data can stream in yeah. or converse or or uh, messages and so on can stream in and distract you. Yes, that's why that's why I try to say um I, I gave these uh, these Hitchcock lectures and I tried to say well what what causes people to get themselves into trouble and I tried to have like something people could like hold on to. And I say it's vulnerability. I try to boil it down. What is it? And it's, it's, it's our human, vul- we're vulnerable. So think about your vulnerability. What are your vulnerabilities? And people are vulnerable. People are vulnerable. They, they, they don't want to feel vulnerable. I try to like boil it down to something that people will be able to sort of understand and not feel ashamed of. And I don't think people are, are necessarily ashamed of feeling vulnerable. I think people need to hold on to something that they don't feel, that they can begin to act on, they don't feel ashamed of. They can say, yeah, that's right, I feel vulnerable. I don't want to feel vulnerable. I'm getting into trouble because I don't want to feel vulnerable. So I don't want people to feel ashamed that they're, they're turning to their phone. And I think that people can latch on to this, that they don't want to feel vulnerable. They feel, that moment of feeling, yeah, I, 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 I feel anxious, I feel alone, I feel vulnerable right now. Like, I flew into Berkeley, I, I, I'm, I'm, allergic, I'm allergic to something in your air. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, ever since I got here, I'm, I'm like sniffling. I, did, I, I felt vulnerable. I reached for my phone. Mm-hmm. I did. I was like alone in my room. I'm, I'm like crying. I'm like phone. I'm like sniffling. I'm, I, I'm weeping. I, I reached for my phone because all my friends are on my phone. My family is on. Everybody is nice to me is on my phone. Okay, that's exactly what we do now when we feel when we're weeping and we're sneezing. We reach for our phone. It's like that is what we do, and that's fine. Except if we do, if except if we, you know, do it all the time. <laughs> and if a person is available, we don't turn to the person. If we do, if, and, and and more and more, 
instead of turning to the people, we turn to our phones. My students don't want to come and talk to me. They'd rather, like, send me a message on their phone, my phone. Everybody wants to be not vulnerable because if, they're, if, if they see me in person, I could ask them a question that would make them feel vulnerable. You, you're concerned now about the societal and political yes, consequences. Yes, You touched on that a minute ago. I mean, we know that with regard uh, to social media, that all this data is being collected. And I get the sense from reading you that they, what, what is being created is a definition of you based on all of the data yeah. that is, is in some ways in conflict with who you are or may want to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we saw in, in our last election that, that there's a, a version of you that's been scraped and, and, and available and that, that, or Brexit, you know, uh, that this data gets sold to actors that have plans and desires and agendas um, that are very specific um, and very powerful and and uh, and really um, can shape uh, our futures and the future of the planet. So if um, uh, and we're vulnerable because now you can have, you know, there are incredible things uh, that artificial intelligence and altered, alternate, altered reality can do. You can have any political figure look as though they're saying anything. You can have Barack Obama look as though he's making a speech that's anti-Semitic. I mean, just his face and his mouth. And his, I mean, you can have anybody saying anything. So what... So, so, what it, so that you can target... You can target, I mean, forget, forget the expression fake news. You can have any, any figure, any music figure from music or art or literature saying anything in a completely convincing way and target that message to, to people who you know from what they shop and where they go and what they do and who they associate with uh, and have people who you know they can be influenced by saying anything to them. This is scary. And we just very, need very, very, very scary. And we and people will do this now. And we just need to be um, on a different kind of alert in this new world. So, so vo- vo- you feel vulnerable. Your attention is captured by what you see online. And that in turn uh, fortifies what could be very negative aspects of your own persona. Yeah, but I mean, but the, one of the things is, is that is that we are we've signed on to a system where we're used to getting things for free. In other words, you get Google Mail for free, you get Maps for free, you get Docs for free, you get Facebook for free. Now, why are you getting all this for free? You're getting it for free because they're taking. Everything they're reading your mail, they're reading your docs, they're reading what you post. That's why it's free. It's not free. You, you've agreed that they can read all your mail, 
They can read all your docs. And they can know where you go. That's not free. So why was it so important to the founders of this country that the mail, the U.S. mail, be protected? Mm. That was, like, very important. And I remember my grandmother, I write about this in Alone Together. It's very, it was very interesting. I mean, there she is, a Jewish woman uh, who, from a pogrom background, and she takes me down to the mailboxes in Brooklyn, and she teaches me that the reason we're in this country is that nobody can tamper with our mail because she knows what it means to have people tamper with your mail. And she says, we're in this country. Now, she, she knows about J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say that it was a perfect system. I mean, I, but basically, she te- well, that's what she teaches her granddaughter. That's what she chooses to teach me, that we're in this country because these mailboxes, that's what America is. It's in the mailboxes. So that was my citizenship lesson. Now, what can I teach my daughter? I'd say in, this, in my book, what can I teach my daughter about, <laughs> about email when I know that anybody can read her email? Anybody can read her Facebook. Anybody can look at what she's doing online. It's all owned by the people who provide it. One, one final question. So can, it's fair to say that a step in resisting, I guess is the word, is consciousness of the implications yes. of all that's happened yes. to us. That's, and I think that, that this, this is the biggest step because people, it's like global warming. This is like, this is like massive forgetting. People, this is the thing that people most want to forget. You can watch them forgetting. As soon as you talk to them about it, you can watch them. You can, you know, I guess, I'm a crack interviewer, so I'm a crack. I can watch them forgetting as I'm interviewing them about it because nobody wants to be reminded. I said, you know, let's talk about your Gmail. You know, you know that it's. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm about, I'm, I'm about being a pain right now for everybody and reminding everybody. Well, on that note, <laughs> and in a positive sense, uh, Sherry, I want to thank you very, thank you much, very much for being it's on been our a pleasure. <laughs> and thank you very much for joining us for this conversation in history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.